Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. Well, this is one of those claims that's frankly hard to substantiate to anybody's satisfaction. But the floods of 1955 are considered by many historians to have been the worst natural disaster to ever occur in recorded Connecticut history. Dozens were killed, thousands were injured, billions of property damage in today's dollars, and others will still argue the blizzard of 1888 or the hurricane of 1938, both truly momentous, but the story behind the floods is just simply amazing. And here to tell that story are Bridget Girton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, and Brent Colley, a native of Reading and local history expert, who is also the first selectman of Sharon in Litchfield County. And now, Connecticut's worst natural disaster, the floods of 1955. I'm not sure how many of you heard me in the introduction call the worst natural disaster to befall Connecticut the floods of 1955. And you might be asking, how can just one disaster be composed of more than one flood? Well, that is part of the intriguing nature of this particular story. The floods of 1955 actually consisted of three different tremendous rain events. The fact is that any one of those storms by itself would have been considered huge and gigantic. Now, the fact that two of them came within a week of each other and the third one just two months later after the ground was soaked and saturated, well, that's what makes the story so incredible and sad. The first two storms were both hurricanes, and they hit in August of 1955, the first one being called Hurricane Connie. It hit August 11th through the 13th. Now, it actually missed being a direct hit on Connecticut, but still dumped four to six inches of rain. Call it a warm-up. The second storm that came a week later was Hurricane Diane. It was hitting on August 18th and 19th and directly hit New England. It dumped 13 to 20 inches, again, depending you know where you were. Well, we're going to pause here because those two storms, when they're put together, are what many parts of the state call the flood of 1955, and I said flood singular. For instance, if you live in Winstead, Connecticut, which is northwest of Hartford and north of Torrington in the obviously northwest quadrant of Connecticut, as far as you're concerned, that's the only flooding event that matters because in 1955, the Mad River, which flows right down Main Street in Winstead, became a raging, roaring wall of water that simply devastated the town and virtually every shop on Main Street was destroyed. Now, in all, there were 70 towns and cities impacted by floodwaters throughout Connecticut, and particularly those that were in the path of the Chapaug, Naugatuck, or Farmington Rivers. 80 people killed, 4,500 injured, property damage statewide pegged at $300 million in those dollars in 1955. Today, it would be $3 billion. Now, In all those 70 towns and cities, Danbury, Connecticut stood out as unusual. Yes, it was one of the 70 that was devastated by the August hurricanes, but the worst for Danbury was yet to come in October when an unnamed tropical storm parked over western Connecticut and eastern New York State and added unbelievable insult to injury. Now, to understand the severity of Mother Nature's events in 1955, please consider these statistics. 
The two hurricanes between them dumped 17 to 26 inches of rain on 70 communities, depending where you were. It was heavier in some and lighter in others. The October tropical storm brought another 12 to 14 inches. So you do the math, and that's 29 to 40 inches of rain. Now, the rule of thumb is one inch of rain is 10 inches of snow. So Connecticut got the equivalent of, are you ready? Between 24 and 33 feet of snow. Now, I'm going to pause for a second here and let you think about that because a two-foot snowstorm paralyzes us. 24 to 33 feet? That's what we're talking about. Well, I spoke with Bridget Gurton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, about the floods of 1955. How devastating was this for Danbury? So the August flood, getting hit by back-to-back storms, Connie and Diane, that was uh, tremendously devastating. The flooding downtown was horrific. An officer, uh, Michael Keating, lost his life while he was rescuing someone uh, from the Thorpe Street Bridge. And it caused a tremendous amount of economic damage in Danbury, over $3 million worth. And so when the floodwaters finally receded, we had this massive devastation and cleanup downtown. And it was one of those come to Jesus moments where the town says, we can't do this anymore. You know, we know that we have built over the Still River floodplain. And so the conversations ensued. And there were, you know, this conversation on on this corner as people are pumping out uh, their basement downtown, you know, as the fire department has miles and miles of equipment spread everywhere trying to get the water out of lower locations. All that conversation uh, coalesced in um, the the idea to create a, a committee that was going to look into uh, the flooding issue. And, you know, the devastating flooding in 1955 in August was horrific for the entire East Coast. So, you know, what happened in Connecticut uh, was mirrored in the states around us, and it there was a devastating loss of life, uh, and the economic damage was tremendous. So in Danbury, we start thinking, how are we going to address this? You know, how are we going to fix this problem? Because we've built so far over the floodplain. We're, we're not pulling that back. Back, what no one saw coming was that Danbury and, and uh, this part of Connecticut would get hit by subsequent storm water and storm damage in October. And so it wasn't just when we when people talk about the floods of 55 in the state of Connecticut, most people are referring just to August. But in our corner of the world, we refer to August and October. And so we had just gotten our merchandise back in our stores. We had just done the massive cleanup. We had just begun to restabilize the buildings that were damaged. We had invested in, you know, the road work. We were moving forward and then, wow, uh, we get several days worth of rain that just devastates the community again. And so we end up with over $6 million of damage in the second round of flooding within that same year. So it's 3 million and 6 million, 9 million total in one year. Yeah. Can you imagine? I cannot even imagine, you know, if you're a shop owner downtown and you've lost your entire round of merchandise twice, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? I mean, the palpable um, sadness and disappointment and anger that hung over the town. And so that led to a lot of discussion about uh, what are we going to do? And, the, and in the end, um, I think Bill Devlin uh, put it best when he said we banished the river. So we took the river that had been a focal point, a part of our aesthetic, a part of our community since 
well, since recorded history began in 1684, but for many, many, many hundreds and thousands of years before that. And instead of seeing it as an iconic part of our downtown, we banished it. We called the Army Corps of Engineers in, and, you know, it was a long process to do this. I mean, you know, getting the Army Corps of Engineers come, to come in and, and rechannel the river and drop the level of the river was, uh, wasn't something that happened, you know, with the snap of the fingers. That took, that took years of work. But on August 30th, 1974, we had groundbreaking ceremonies for the banishment, and that is when the Still River was rechanneled. So the Army Corps of Engineers came in. And they literally dug a second channel next to the Still River as it runs downtown. Then they moved the Still River over into the new channel. Then they dug the original channel down further, dropped it about 40 feet, um, added concrete uh, barriers and siding, and then moved the river back into its original channel. It was a massive, massive undertaking. Now, if you ask most people in town, how the Still River flows through downtown. What used to be, for hundreds of years, an iconic site is now, gosh, you know, I, I think it's it's over there. I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, you've got to go over to the side of the bridges and look down. But it's saved Danbury several times. So had we not done that, uh, when Superstorm Floyd flew through this area, I think it was in 1999, the damage that it did was tremendous. And the Still River did rise up, and, and I'm talking about the damage to other parts of our Danbury community where the river was not rechanneled and, and dropped down. But it wasn't anything like what it could have been. Yeah, I guess you take the good with the bad. At the end of the day, like you say, economics was one driver, but I've got to believe morale, and you started to touch on this before, it must have just been so demoralizing to have fixed up after August and then see October come. So moving the community forward in a community-wide discussion about what to do galvanized the Chamber of Commerce, uh, our local politicians, our statewide politicians, our politicians who represent us on the national level. And so there was this we can actually do something mentality. You know, we can pull someone in, we can pull a group in, we can get the Army Corps of Engineers to come in and help us do this work. And I think it empowered people. You know, it gave them confidence again. So let me ask you, without getting too specific on geography, roughly give people an idea of how much of downtown was underwater. Well, gosh, so Main Street runs um, north to south, south to north. So, you you know, you've got South Street at one end, uh, the lower end of Main Street, and North Street at, at the upper end. And if you imagine that from Elmwood Park, a little further north of Elmwood Park, past the intersection where St. Joseph's is located now, that was under water. And in some sections, especially in the downtown uh, quarter, we used to call it Worcester Square, that was under feet and feet and feet of water. Uh, people had to take shelter on the top level and be airlifted off because the floodwaters were so high. But uh, it, the danger uh, itself wasn't necessarily just because the floodwaters were high. It was because the floodwaters were moving. And they were moving much faster than you would think. They were dangerous uh, in, in that uh, respect. It was no longer the Still River. No, it did not live up to its name. I had heard the stories about people being airlifted. There were helicopters flying yes. over Danbury getting these people off the roofs? Yes. Where, National Guard, I'm assuming? Yes. So uh, in August, the National Guard was called in, and uh, they were instrumental uh, you know, in really 
helping the community navigate something that was previously unthinkable. You know, we'd had big superstorms here before. Uh, the um, hurricane of 38 comes to mind. That was that was massive. Um, the uh, blizzard of 1888. You know, those were massive um, generationally recognized storms. So that was something you're telling your grandkids about. You're, you know, where were you during the blizzard of 1888? Where were you during the hurricane of 1938? And so, you know, that kind of generational information gets passed on. But, you know, we took it as a generational lesson. And I think Danbury really learned from it. How was the death toll in the civilian population? You mentioned the one police officer. So, so uh, we lost uh, two people, two persons in Danbury, uh, which was uh, horrible. And we did not, I believe, lose anyone during the flooding in October. It was during the flooding in, in August. We were, I hate to say it, but a little bit more sophisticated when the flooding began in October. We'd been through it. We knew how to evacuate. We knew the lowest sections. We knew what was going to flood. We This had just happened to us. So... I think the community responded in a slightly different manner in October. But the mental trauma of going through something like this as a community lingered for decades and lingers still. You know, you can go and have a conversation at a variety of places in Danbury and you can say flood of 55 and people will say, oh, my God, you know, my mom told me or I experienced that or I was a kid then. It was a traumatic community wide experience. The October tropical storm impacted three rivers dramatically. The Still River in Danbury, which we just discussed with Bridget, and the Norwalk and Saugatuck Rivers, both of which flow south of Danbury into Reading, Georgetown, Ridgefield, and Wilton, and they caused unreal damage there as well. Here's Reading native and local history expert Brent Colley, who's currently also the first selectman of Sharon, with the part of the story south of Danbury. You know, you had Connie and Diane, which were the hurricanes that happened in August. Unbelievable. If anyone looks into the August storms, they're going to be blown away with what happened within them. And the communities were highly impacted by them. Danbury was too, um, but Danbury was kind of rare. And most every other town below Danbury and, and across didn't really suffer the damage that Danbury did. So then we get into the October storms the roads that you were kind of more common to have in, in that time frame, dirt or concrete, and water runs really fast. And when water runs fast, things start to break away. And once water finds a seam, everything just kind of disappears. The dams and the earth around the dams were impacted, but they didn't fail. And then when you got into the October storms, the volume of water, particularly on, on that Saturday, really did the damage um, that you see uh, in the final result. And if you think of all the rain from all the storms, the two hurricanes and the October tropical storm, that's what the state of Connecticut overall sort of suffered through. And this is the kind of volume of water we're talking about. Tell me, you looked into this with the Georgetown meteorologists. How many inches of rain were we talking about? We'll say 12 and a half to 14 inches. Um, and it starts like on a Friday morning early and then it runs through the day. And it's, it really doesn't really get too dangerous until you head into Saturday. Around noon, you're getting into eight inches already. And then within the next 48 hours, you're looking at almost eight inches falling on top of that. If you go to Google Maps and you just Google 
great pond. And then you hit the satellite, you know, zoom out and take a look at it. What you're going to see is a lot more water than is expected. So there's a lot of ponds. There's a lot of streams. There's a lot of water pockets all within that region, just above Great Pond. Once the water volume from the Danbury Airport area filters down to Great Pond, the Great Pond Dam starts to get taxed. The dam releases. And what that releases is basically a surge of water that will act like, imagine dominoes falling on all the ponds and all the dams below it. And as each dam fails, people think a tsunami is like big waves, but it's more like little waves that just get bigger and bigger and bigger as they move across the environment that they're in. So it's a tsunami of water flowing through the Norwalk River watershed that gets stronger and harder through each community that it reaches. And the other thing that you need to consider is that that water is running downhill. Danbury is about 400 feet above sea level. And then you get down to Branchville and that's like 340-ish. And then you get to Cannondale, 230-ish. And then Norwalk is like in the 40s. So not only do you have a volume of water that's running fast and hard and breaking and exploding, but it's going downhill. From 1030 on into the night, you're getting a surge of not only water, but a surge of every single type of debris from broken bridges to lumber to you name it. You tell the story of, uh, I think it was Connery's Lumberyard, as a matter of fact, where I guess uh, Harold Connery tried to put a, at least a bit of a happy face on it at the end. What was the story with that, speaking of debris going downstream? Yeah, I mean, obviously he had a sense of humor. He, he, would, he contacted his customers later that week and asked if they'd got the uh, shipment of lumber he sent them over the weekend. <laughs> I just love that one. But, I mean, you know, this really... Uh, is so serious it's amazing though not more people died and i guess there was the one case in reading on i guess it was the diamond hill road bridge where a couple was coming home from dinner what happened there that's a harrowing story as the weather seemed to be getting worse they decided you know it was time to go home now they had a teenage son at home waiting for them you know they came down the hill he decided that it was worthwhile to give it a shot to cross and the volume of water across that dam there was heavier than he imagined. And the car immediately got swept over into the, the raging river. Uh, he was ejected immediately and, and gone. She was able to find her way to shore, hold on to a tree, I think, for several hours. And rescuers were able to get within 20 feet with her. But unfortunately, her strength failed her and she fell in and she drowned as well. And they were found, you know, within 20 feet of each other, close to the current reservoir down on the Saugatuck. Everybody in certainly this region has driven down Route 7. And one of my favorite pastimes when driving down Route 7 is keeping half an eye on the beautiful river that goes right by it. And yet I can imagine... You know, I wasn't there for that storm, but I can imagine, and, and reading your article, uh, parts of Route 7 itself were actually washed away with this. 
Yeah, completely. Yeah, it took out every bridge, every, you know, whether it was a, a railroad bridge or a crossing bridge. And like I said, it was just that tsunami of water that was just coming and just taking everything out in its path. Now, the other thing that goes by Route 7, of course, is the train. You tell some incredible stories, uh, particularly in Wilton, about what happened to some of the track. People start to get kind of concerned late afternoon. Volumes start to, to pick up just because all the streams and the tributaries are, are coming down through it. But by about 9, you know, a train trying to make its way out of Norwalk gets stuck. So they had to come with uh, basically an Army Corps of Engineers helicopter and, and get them out of there. And with the Great Pond failing at 1030, that was great timing because they all would have been washed away if that hadn't occurred. But that's the difference, I think, in that time frame. I think that's really what I take away from then and now. I mean, a lot of these individuals were volunteer firefighters, but they're also veterans of World War II. So you're looking at individuals with a lot more knowledge of how to navigate trouble. You would not have that in the present day, but you had it then. And that made a large difference no matter what community that you were in, was that you had people out in the middle of the night with no cell phones, no toy radios, just people that knew that there was something terribly wrong, bringing their own boats from wherever they lived knowing that people were stranded and they needed help. And, you know, that's the difference. It's a significant difference, I think, um, between then and now. And it's something that um, it'd be nice to get back to, but I'm not quite sure if we will. wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. With climate change, heavy rain events are expected to become the norm, and we've actually already started to see that around the U.S. So we're likely to have many more such stories for future generations to talk about. We can only hope that we learn from the past events and will minimize the number of personal injuries as well as the extents of property damage. I want to thank my two guests for this episode, Bridget Gurton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, and Brent Colley, Reading native and local historian, who's also the first selectman of Sharon. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and this way you'll be notified when the next episode goes live, and tell your family, friends, and colleagues all about it. Also, I do presentations on the topics I discuss here on Amazing Tales, I'll do them live in person or through Zoom. Happy to discuss doing one in front of your group. Just drop me a line at amazingtalesct at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy. Stay healthy.